Radio. The Council, 50 Years On. A talk by Archbishop Julian Porteous at the 15th Annual Call to Holiness Conference. Subject of today, as you know, is, is on the Second Vatican Council, and, uh, and so I, I suppose my talk will just be a broader talk, and I'm really just wanting to offer a couple of reflections to you um, concerning the Council, if you like, 50 years on. So, if you like, standing back and just looking at the Council in view, particularly of what has happened subsequently. Um, and just what has been the impact of the Council on the Church. Now certainly the first thing we have to say is that uh, the Second Vatican Council was um, one of the 20th century's major events because it affected a church which is worldwide, a church uh, which has a very profound influence on the lives of million, billion people, in fact, and not only the Catholic Church, but also that church uh, influences many other the Christian churches in various ways. And so the Vatican Council wasn't just something, if you like, restricted or limited to its impact on the Catholic Church, but, uh, but also had ramifications and, and impact on other churches. Of course, the Catholic uh, Church is, um, is the oldest continuous institution in the world, and so whenever that institution uh, reflects upon itself and directs itself forward, that is something of very great significance historically in terms of the direction that the, uh, the, church, the church takes. And so I, and I think we have to be aware then that uh, this Second Vatican Council, which we're celebrating now 50 years since uh, it began, um, was something of quite extraordinary significance. And we all know that it has, has had a very significant impact on our lives as, uh, as Catholics and Church. We've lived in this period after the Second Vatican Council where all sorts of things have flowed forth and all sorts of things have influenced the direction, the spirit, the mission, the life of, of the church. So uh, I, I think this 50th anniversary has been a very good opportunity to uh, visit it again, if you like, to, to look back. But as I said, to look back at it now from the point of view of the last 50 years. And, and how the, the, the council has had an impact on church. So that's what I'm hoping to do. And I'm, just some very simple ideas, really, uh, with, uh, which I hope may be of assistance to you today. Uh, as you know, one of the um, issues that um, Pope uh, Benedict, uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict now has, uh, has very clearly, uh, as he's able to do, very clearly understood and, and been able to articulate is um, the question of, of how people have seen and understood the nature of the council and its impact on the church. And uh, that basically, um, as uh, Pope Benedict has said, we can sort of see that some people would see the council as, as bringing in a rupture, and that's the word he uses, a rupture to the church. Now, some people say that the, that the council now is, uh, is wanting to make a break from the past to a certain extent and direct it forward in, in new and particular ways. And, and the other position is that many believe that the council stands in line uh, of continuity 
with the tradition, the living tradition of the of the church. Um, I'm sure you're aware of this um, this particular uh, insight, uh, this particular understanding that uh, Pope Benedict has spoken about, and I'd like just to speak briefly about that because I think it's a of, uh, of really vital importance in terms of our understanding of of uh, the significance. <coughs> of the Second Vatican Council in and, and for the Church. You, you may be aware, in fact, uh, I think the quote that is down here is taken from uh, an address that uh, Pope Benedict gave to the uh, Roman Curia in 2005. And uh, he, he said this, um, the question arises, why has the implementation of the Council in large parts of the Church thus far been so difficult? Well, it all depends, he says, on the correct interpretation of the council, or as we would say today, on its proper hermeneutic, the correct key to its interpretation and application. He goes and says, the problems in its implementation arose from the fact that two contrary hermeneutics came face to face and quarrelled with each other. That's why I'm putting it. Quarrelled with each other. One caused confusion, the other, silently, but more and more visibly, bore and is bearing fruit. On the one hand, he says, there is an interpretation that I would call a hermeneutic of discontinuity or rupture. It has frequently availed itself of the sympathies of the mass media and also one trend of modern theology. On the other, there is a hermeneutic of reform. So it was there really that uh, Pope Benedict spoke specifically about this way of interpreting. Hermeneutics just means a way of understanding, way of interpreting something. So there are two if you like, ways of interpreting what the council was about. And he clearly indicates in that, I think, too, his own understanding of uh, one producing not much fruit, very little fruit, the other producing more quietly and more steadily, but eventually producing good fruit. I think when we, uh, when we hear Pope Benedict uh, speak about this, it's probably worthwhile as, as, as well just to, to say, well, what was in the mind of the uh, instigator, the creator, if you like, of the Second Vatican Council? What was the, the view, the attitude, the approach that Pope uh, Blessed John Paul, uh, John uh, XXIII uh, had? What did he have in his mind when he convoked the Second uh, Vatican Council. And in his opening address of the Council, he had this to say, the 21st Ecumenical Council wishes to transmit the Catholic doctrine pure and integral, without any attenuation or distortion. However, our duty is not only to guard this precious treasure as if we were concerned only with antiquity, but also to dedicate ourselves promptly and without fear to that work which our era demands of us, pursuing the path which the Church has travelled for almost 20 centuries. It is necessary that this certain and unchanging doctrine 
to which our faithful assent is due be studied and expounded in the manner required for our times. I think that's a very useful description of what was in the mind of Pope uh, John the Twenty-Third as he uh, converted to the Council. So, good Pope John, as he's often uh, referred to, is often spoke about as a Pope who promoted the notion of a giornamental, which was certainly one of the key terms that was used around the, the beginnings and, and during the course of the, the council. And, and a giornamento was often interpreted as updating, but there's always this sense that the church uh, really had to change. And this word giornamento was often utilized as a, as a word to promote change, which actually was actually moving away from the past to something new and, and different. But we can see very clearly that uh, as uh, Pope John Paul, as Pope John the Twenty Third used the word giornamento, he didn't have that in mind. He very clearly saw that the, the the church's task of the preservation and handing on, in its integrity, uh, the the doctrine, the teaching, the tradition of of the church. So it was really the way people used that term giornamento that I think uh, caused difficulties afterwards and often would go would, would sort of say well this is what Pope John XXIII had in mind it's, we're going to change the church so at the present moment I, I think we're witnessing and it is this uh, quiet movement that is actually now I think coming more to the surface and becoming more evident in the church that so we are now seeing that uh, more clearly we're understanding that the purpose of the council was to actually preserve and to be in effective continuity with the past. As we know, as the council was uh, was was finishing, particularly, and the, the documents were all produced, that um, many people felt that uh, that what the council was actually doing was. Um, bringing in a new day for the church a, 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 a new uh, sense of the, of the church and, uh, adjusting to the times being more relevant to the times able to uh, accept a lot of things from the from the world, the modern world to absorb them, to take them into uh, the church that have become part and parcel of the character and nature of the church and the church is able to find its place more within contemporary culture and, and more able they would say to be uh, able to communicate more effectively with the culture because that it was more in tune uh, with that particular culture. That was really the, the predominant narrative that found expression uh, in the years uh, following the council, the one, certainly the one that was most popularly being promoted um, and one that was very attractive to the media, for instance, many commentators, and even to, as, as Pope uh, Bendix said, to some schools in theology. And uh, I suppose 50 years on, we can really and honestly ask the question, where this has actually taken place, where these mentalities have been, have been adopted, where people have actually sought to uh, live their Catholic faith in these sorts of terms, what has been the fruit? What has actually come forth in the church as clear sign of the fruitfulness 
of such a position, of, of such a, uh, an approach uh, within the church. And I think we can say that the fruit is fairly scarce indeed. Now it's true, isn't it? The church must live within its own particular times. It must be present in the modern world and be able to effectively communicate with the modern world. We cannot allow ourselves as Catholics to enter into some kind of ghetto, some kind of Catholic ghetto, closing off from the world and uh, happily and contentedly living our own particular faith within, a, if you like, a fairly safe and, and nurturing environment whereby we know we can preserve the integrity and the spirit of our faith, but, um, but in a way wanting to cut ourselves off from the world and the realities of what's happening in the culture and civilization around us. We can't, too, allow ourselves, if you like, to retreat to the past and to cling desperately to what existed before, that kind of nostalgia that we often can say, oh, things were always better when, and sort of wanting to let's just go back and try to hang on to desperately what we once found to be very nourishing and very good for us. We have to be, as Catholics, in the world. We have to engage with the world. We have to be able to communicate with the world. And we have to be able to change the world. And that's the key thing. We've got to change the world in which we live. You know, that old age, which we know very well, we must be in the world but not of the world. But we're in the world not just because by force of circumstance that's where we are, but we're in the world because we're to be the leaven in the midst of the dough. We're to be the light that shines forth, that's taken out from under the bushel basket and put up where everyone can see. We are to be the salt that actually preserves society and culture. So these images that the Lord himself used are clear indications of what he also expects of us as a church. And so we must be in the world, but in the world, preserving and presenting the integrity, the light and the transforming power of our Catholic faith. Now I believe that we've reached a moment where perhaps for the last 50 years we haven't quite been at whereby it's more possible now to do exactly that. To be in the world clearly preserving the integrity of our faith and bringing what we have through our faith to the world in which we live. Now that message, that understanding of human life, that vision of eternity, that set of moral, ethical teachings, all of these things won't be necessarily accepted by the world. We don't accept that we don't recognise that they probably will be. But that's not the point. It's not the point about whether we are accepted. Woe, the Lord says to us, if the world thinks well of you. Um, so we have a warning there to say we're not necessarily going to be accepted. But what is important is that we are there in who we are, 
clear in who we are and willing to present to the world the essential wisdom, truth and beauty of our Catholic faith. And I think there's a growing sense in the church of a confidence in being Catholic, a clearer sense among some, not for all by any means, but, but by some that we can be clear about our Catholic identity, live it unashamedly, with courage, offer it to the society in which we live. Now the struggles that have taken place over the last 50 years, and many of you here have been quite intimately involved with these struggles in various ways, and perhaps at times you have felt that the forces and powers at work that you would see were weakening and, uh, and leading the church astray were such that your, your voice, your efforts were had little or no consequence or significance um, for directing things as they, as you saw they needed to be directed. I'm going to offer you a thought today. Maybe all this has been very, very good for all of us. Not so much to see that what we've been involved with a battle of wills or minds, but actually to see that this process that we've experienced and lived in various ways over the past 50 years has actually been good for us because it has purified us, purified our faith and clarified our faith for us. Certainly we're in a position now we can't just take our Catholic faith for granted and presume that everybody else in the church sees things the way I see things, understands the Catholic faith in the way that I have understood the Catholic faith. Now the process has been painful. been painful for the church. There have been many, many struggles and many, many difficulties. But... Perhaps from this, from a certain pruning that has taken place in the church, that actually the church has been strengthened. We have been strengthened. And perhaps we are in a place now where the potential for the future of the church is better than it's ever been. And I believe the essential stage we're at now, the essential base of, uh, from upon which we can, can go forward, is simply that the church can become a new evangelical, have a new evangelical or orientation in the sense that we can, from a clearer purified faith be able to present that faith with greater confidence, clarity and power and effectiveness maybe we are at a new evangelical moment which of course needs to be recognised and seized I think we've all learned a lot in the last 50 years as the debates have raged. 
I'm sure all of us have been humbled by the process. Maybe there's been many times when there's been some serious soul searching. I'm going to come before the Lord and say, well, all these things that are happening, Lord, what, what does it really mean to be a Catholic? Maybe we've found ourselves being more drawn to rely upon the Lord and not upon ourselves. And all this has been part of this purification process about which I've been speaking. What it's done is brought us back to the essence of our faith, which in the end is the quality of our personal relationship with God. It's not just promoting certain theological positions, certain liturgical practices, certain spiritualities. It really does boil down in the end to our own humble, personal relationship with God. And maybe in this process I've been drawn closer to God. And maybe too, in this process, I've come to see my own frailty and weakness much more clearly. And perhaps also this period has taught me to be patient, that things don't just happen because I want them to happen. Maybe we've also learned to forgive our brothers and sisters in the faith who maybe have different attitudes and different approaches to us. We've, been learned, we've learned to accept them. So in all of this, we've learned to rely more upon God and less upon ourselves. And perhaps we've learned too that uh, in the end things are going to change not because I have the skills or even the conviction to bring them about but that simply we've come to learn that our human efforts unaided have amounted to very little. And so we realise we can't do it by ourselves. Perhaps this has been a very good lesson to learn. And perhaps too we've learned that the church is not ours. The church is God's. So when we um, when we look at the council, what, what actually happened at the Second Vatican Council? Particularly because there's been so much debate and discussion around the interpretation of the council, I think we do need to ask ourselves what actually happened at the Council. Now, one of the things that I think is very easy for everyone to fall into is to interpret the Council in terms of the work of those who were involved in producing the documents and voting on the documents and so on. So there's been a whole lot of emphasis on the personalities, hasn't there? whole lot of emphasis on those particular people who contributed to the council and people have taken sides with regard to this theologian as against that this particular bishop as against that particular bishop what we've done there is actually reduced the council to a human enterprise what we've done is simply see it as at times certain power struggles or certain personality struggles or certain efforts to achieve 
particular theological positions as against other theological positions. Is that all the council was? Was it just the human work? Was it just the fruit, personalities, of theologies? Where was the Holy Spirit? Where was the Holy Spirit? Now we know it's an act of faith. The Holy Spirit was present. This is that joke going around, isn't there? The, oh, the council, I forgot about that. But uh, we know that's not true. He didn't forget. He was there. But what was the Spirit doing in the council? And I think this is a very important question to ask, and maybe it's a question we can ask and see and understand the possibilities of what the Spirit was actually doing more clearly now, 50 years on, than certainly at the time of the Council itself, or certainly in its immediate aftermath. We can believe the Holy Spirit was there, was inspiring and directing what took place and what emerged from the Council. And I think it's important here that we, we, we do make this distinction between the spirit of the council and the spirit who inspired the council. Because when we talk about the spirit of Vatican II, if you like, I think what we're often talking about here is our spirit. We're talking about a human spirit. We're talking about personal preferences and hopes. What does the Spirit do? We know from John 16, the Spirit leads into all truth. Spirit leads into all truth. Like there's a journey and the Spirit is there leading the church into all truth, to the fullness of truth. And again, that's where I think it's, it's, it's important to understand the nature of tradition in association with the council. There can be some, there are some, sadly, in the church who have decided that the, church, that the council is actually a, a break with the tradition, Catholic tradition, and they've broken themselves off from the church to form... Uh, their own, what they believe to be the authentic church holding fast to things of the past but unwilling to accept a number of decisions made by the council. But is, is tradition of a church simply a collection of beliefs and practices which are somehow fixed once and for all and somehow can be so uh, delineated that we can decide in, in, in sets of words that we can decide that something is or is not in the tradition, part of the tradition. To do this, to freeze tradition and if you like to mark it historically to say that it's only those things that happen up to this particular date that are in fact the true tradition is to make the tradition dead. 
fixed in stone. The tradition is not like that. It's not the church's understanding of nature of tradition. Tradition is a living reality. For one reason, that the Holy Spirit is a living reality, breathing, inspiring, activating that tradition, leading it forward into the fullness of truth. So perhaps we can see then that perhaps through it all, truth is being revealed to us. We're discovering truth in a new way, in a, in a sense. Not so much, so much that we, with the, those truths that we can just lock in words. I mean, that's important, of course, we have creeds and so forth that do that. But as I said, that's not the fullness of the meaning and understanding of truth and tradition uh, within the Catholic Church. We are seeing truth. Perhaps a little bit more clearly. Not simply as a return to the past, but a living truth that inspires us today. And a living truth that so captivates us that we know we have something precious, we have a treasure in this truth that we want to offer to others. In fact, we feel impelled to offer it to others. It is not just a truth that we return back and look back. It's a truth we say we take forward and we offer for the good and direction of society and for the salvation of souls. And we see this happening. Who can explain in human terms the fact that we are witnessing around us a new generation of Catholics who have not known the Council and have not been involved in the debates surrounding its interpretation, yet are discovering the beauty of faith and wanting to embrace that faith and live that faith. This surely is a source of great encouragement for us. So many of these young people really have grown up in a church that has been somewhat confused, a rather, a rather uncertain environment that has been reflected in family life, parish life, in school life. And they haven't had what we may have had ourselves in, that, in terms of a sound formation in Catholic faith. But somehow, if you like, they're coming out of the fog and they're seeing things for the first time and they're loving what they are seeing. They're falling in love with the church, accepting its authoritative teaching and finding themselves having extraordinary personal devotion to the Holy Father. Now, perhaps some people may try to give some sort of psychological explanation to this phenomenon, really to sort of dismiss it as an aberration or or to give it some sort of way of being seen as just some young people uh, being drawn uh, to the faith, a little bit more of a curiosity. But I think we see it 
from the eyes of faith, if we if we do see that um, perhaps this is a genuine fruit of the Spirit, that somehow, in a mysterious way, we are seeing something emerge, a little bit like we see what happens after a bushfire has gone through. And just when you think the trees are completely and totally dead, the new springs of life come forward. And we're amazed. Because there's a principle of life within that tree that was not killed, even though the exterior of the tree looked blackened and dead. So, when we talk about this, I think we have to ask ourselves, has in fact the work of God being accomplished in and through the Second Vatican Council? In 1981, Blessed John Paul said, the whole work of renewal in the Church, so providently set forth and initiated by the Second Vatican Council, a renewal that must be both an updating and a consolidation of what is eternal and constitutive of the Church's mission can be carried out only in the Holy Spirit. That is to say, with His with the aid of His light and power, only with the Holy Spirit. The Council's work can only be achieved ultimately by the Holy Spirit. I think this is a very important insight. So we need to ask ourselves... What has the Spirit actually been doing? If you like, using the image from uh, the book of Revelation, what has the Spirit been saying to the church in and through the council and in and through what has followed uh, subsequently? So mostly we look, people look at the council in terms of structural changes that have taken place. And it said some want to see a modernisation of the church. In other words, change the church at the surface. But the church isn't just a structure. The church is a living body of Christ. And the beating heart of that church is the Holy Spirit. So it's not an organisation. It's not a set of teachings. It's a living body of Christ. And so we can often find ourselves, all of us, focused upon the exterior expressions of things, but not able to see the inner, deeper and more fruitful workings of the grace of God. Just like we can be so busy with the scripture text, dissecting it, you know, finding out where it was written, who wrote it, who wrote it for, what these words mean, what, what was the context, all that sort of thing, the historical critical method that's been used. We can so focus upon understanding the surface of meaning that is found within a text, but not hear the living word of God which that text is a vehicle of. And so it can be with the teachings of the Council. We can so be busy interpreting it and arguing over words and ideas that we fail to see, in fact, what the Spirit was doing in and through the work of the Council. What are some of the signs of this? And of course we know that Pope John, Paul, Pope John the Twenty-Third spoke about the idea that he hoped the Council would be a new Pentecost. Has there been a new Pentecost through the Council? And Pope said, "Oh no, <laughs> something went very wrong. There's no, there was no. And perhaps 
we, we were expecting some kind of wondrous new church that would be so powerful and effective that uh, this would be the signs of the new Pentecost. But perhaps the Pentecost was there and we didn't see it because the Holy, but because the Holy Spirit was working so quietly, so deeply, but so effectively that in fact we're going to see and witness the work of God being accomplished through the church shaped by the Second Vatican Council. I believe, as I said, I believe the church is regathering itself around Christ and it, I believe, will be more effective in its proclamation of his work of salvation in the time ahead. The church has been renewed in its members, not, not in massive numbers. In fact, we all gain, we always fall to the trick of looking at numbers. But maybe we are witnessing about us the beginnings of a new evangelical impulse in the church. And this is witnessed by the emergence of many new movements across the church. And Pope Blessed John Paul said he could see in these new movements signs of a new springtime for the church. Again, Pope Benedict said a similar thing in, in, on Christmas Mass on Holy Thursday in 2012, that anyone who considers the history of the post-conciliar era can recognise the process of true renewal which often took unexpected forms in living movements and made almost tangible the inexhaustible vitality of Holy Church, the presence and effectiveness of the Holy Spirit. This is what I would like to propose to you today. At 50 years on, we look at the Council, but we don't look at the letter. We don't look at the politics. We don't look at the personalities, but we humbly and attentively seek what God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has actually done in and through the Second Vatican Council. Thank you. That was Archbishop Julian Porteous on The Council, 50 Years On. This talk was from the Call to Holiness Conference on the Second Vatican Council. For more information, visit calltoholiness.com.au And for more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au